And it's going to be found in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and we're reading from the New Living Translation. It reads like this, and it'll be on the screen as well behind me. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 providences. He appointed a high officer to rule over each providence. The king also chose Daniel and two other administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interest. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officials began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law. It cannot be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. Good morning, everyone. Standing firm, standing firm at work. This morning, I want you to think about your workplace or maybe where you used to work if you're retired or where you spend your weekdays. If you're a student, maybe it's your days at school. And I want you to think about your workplace, your, your, wherever you are during the week, and think about, is it hard for you to be a person of integrity there? Is it hard to be a person who honors God in that place? Is it easy for you to be really good at what you do and also to be gracious and loving and patient with the people around you? Or do you kind of have to choose between them in the place where you spend your weekdays? Does the person or the people who head your company, maybe it's you, do they set that kind of tone where they highly value excellence in your work, but they also highly value the way you treat other people, treating them well, being an honest and gracious person? I once worked in a setting where I really struggled to respect my boss. He was somebody who was involved in other things, and so he was gone quite a bit. And it seemed like whenever he was around, he was mostly interested in just rushing through whatever decisions had to be made so he could move on to the next thing. And he paid very little attention to uh, setting a tone in our, in our office. Um, he didn't pay much attention at all to the way people treated each other. 
And his main um, strategy seemed to be conflict avoidance. And so you can imagine that, you know, there were rumblings, there were uh, things happening under the surface. Um, You could be good at your work, but you could also not be all that good at your work, and it didn't really seem to matter. You could be honest and gracious, but you could also not be those things, and that seemed to be okay too. Um, I mean, the good news in an environment like that is that you are free to do kind of what you want to do, and I, I enjoyed that freedom. But it wasn't really an, a very constructive or um, positive place to work. And I thought about that workplace, that work situation this week when I started thinking about Daniel's work situation, the character Daniel. I, I think we probably don't often think of characters in the Bible as people who went to work every day, like we do, but they did. Um, or maybe that, not like somebody who went to school every, every day, but they did. And in fact, in this story, if you remember from last week, it said that Daniel and his three friends were put to school. They went to the Babylonian Leadership Development Program every day for three years. And they were trained in all of the arts and sciences that Babylon had to offer. You remember uh, the Bible character Daniel is one of the promising young men that we talked about last week who was um, taken from his homeland when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and they forced the people into exile. These things happened almost 600 years before Jesus was born. Babylon was in what we think of today as modern day, what we know as modern day Iraq, and they came over and conquered in the land of Judah, took the treasures of the land, but also some of the best and the brightest young people as well. The Babylonians placed an especially high value in their leaders or among their advisors, they placed an especially high value on the ability to interpret dreams and to interpret signs so that, so that the kings and the advisors could look into the future together and kind of know what was coming and make better decisions. We're kind of skeptical about that approach to the future these days. I mean, we tend to want to rely on experts, people who are uh, data analysts and who are looking at data, processing data, and then putting together forecasts based on on data and, and analysis. But honestly, they're not, well, so our hope is to look into the future, that they look into the future for us as well. But honestly, I'm not sure they're all that much better at it, really. I mean, you think about economic forecasts and at least it seems like half of the econo- ec- economists are wrong about what's in the future. And they, they'll admit them th- this themselves. They've actually done studies that say, you know, some large number of economists who are looking into the future, they give us conflicting ideas and some number of them are wrong. We also, we pay, uh, somebody is paying people day and night to, to analyze sports data, right? These people talking 24 hours a day about what's going to happen in the sports world. Uh, if you're following the, the basketball tournament that's happening right now, you know that last night uh, Duke and UNC, uh, North Carolina played each other. When I looked yesterday to see what the experts were saying so I would know what to expect in the future, most of the, all the ones I read said that Duke was going to win the game, but they didn't. Oh, sorry, sorry if you're going home to watch the recording. Uh, spoiler alert there. Uh, but they didn't. And it just strikes me that we want to look into the future too. We just have a different approach. I'm not sure it's all that much more reliable. It says in Daniel 2 that, Daniel chapter 2, that the Babylonians kings trusted magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Those were their advisors, their key advisors as they looked into the future. And interestingly enough, it says that Daniel and his friends were outstanding in the ability to do those things. And they were outstanding in their ability to appear into the future by interpreting dreams. And they got huge rewards from the king for that. You remember last week we read from Daniel 1, it said that in every matter of wisdom and understanding, the king found Daniel and his friends 10 times better than 
all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So they weren't just capable men of character. They were also 10 times better than the magicians and enchanters that the king was used to relying on. In chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, um, after Daniel interprets a really troubling dream for the king, Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He has this really troubling dream, and he, he has a clear sense that this is uh, predicting something about the future. When Daniel comes in to interpret the dream, it says, after he did so, the king believed his interpretation, and then it says the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished gifts on him. He made him ruler, and not, he didn't just reward him. He also made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. This is a foreigner in this land, it would be like a, an immigrant coming uh, to our nation and being placed uh, in charge of like the whole of Washington, D.C., or the whole metro area, all the states surrounding it. He's placed in charge of the whole province of Babylon. And at his request, the king also appoints his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, administrators over the province of Babylon, and Daniel himself remained, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. According to the book of Daniel, Daniel served pagan kings in two different world uh, superpower empires of the time, Babylon and Medo-Persia. This morning in the reading, you heard about Medes and the Persians. That was the second empire. And there were two kings, there are two kings mentioned in each of those empires that Daniel was a close advisor to. In the Babylonian empire, he was an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, we talked about last week, and also to Belshazzar. And in the Medo-Persian Empire, he was an advisor to Darius, who we're talking about this morning, and later Cyrus. Somehow Daniel flourished in his work. Somehow in the courts of these pagan kings, even though he was a devoted follower of the living God, he was respected and trusted by them. And you know, I think if you try to put yourself back into those courtrooms and the places that he was, he likely overheard some discussions and heard some decisions made that were pretty harsh pretty ruthless. I mean, emperors of this time were pretty careless about human life, cared mostly about their own power, their own authority. There's no record of how Daniel uh, navigated that, uh, what he did or how he responded. His job was to interpret dreams and help the king see into the future. But I'm guessing that he was in a much rougher work environment than you and I are in in most weeks. I mean, it, from what we know about royal courts, even more recent ones than that, they're just full of, of backstabbing and gossip and infighting. And Daniel would have had a front row seat for all of that. And yet somehow he managed to honor God in that setting. So that in chapter 6, one of the verses that uh, Josh read for us this morning, it says that Daniel was faithful, he was always responsible, and he was completely trustworthy. That's quite a that's quite a list. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy in his work, in his workplace. I think maybe this was in stark contrast to the people around him who were not faithful, who were not always responsible, who were not always completely trustworthy. One of the things that's amazing to me about Daniel as a character in the Bible is that there, as far as I know, there's nothing negative recorded about him, either in the book of Daniel or anywhere else. I mean, I'm sure he was a real person, just like you and I are, with real strengths and real weaknesses. But even so, like, like we heard last week, he was highly respected in heaven. And now this week in chapter 6, he's clearly highly respected here on earth as well. So he's got those double credentials, which are, I think are pretty impressive. So today we're talking, last week we talked about standing firm when challenged, 
Today, standing firm at work. Next week, we'll talk about standing firm in the future. So today's story comes from Daniel 6, as Pastor Josh read for us just a moment ago. Uh, Daniel is serving his second king, or his third king in the second empire. So we're in the Medo-Persian empire. The first of those two kings is Darius. And we don't know quite how, I'm not sure how this happened, but somehow he went from this very high position in one empire to a very similar position in the second empire. I mean, usually when a conquering empire comes in, they destroy, just just remove everybody who had anything to do with the previous empire. You would think that the the coming king, the one who's coming in, the conquering king, would come in with his own circle of trusted advisors, but somehow, somehow this king also trusted Daniel. His reputation, I guess, carried forward with him. And so it says he divided the king, Darius divided the kingdom into 120 provinces, appointed a high officer or like a provincial governor over each of them, and then he chose Daniel and two other people as administrators to supervise the high officials. So Daniel is one of three administrators who are at the top of this, this org chart. There's probably more detail than that. We don't really have much more detail, but it's just very clear that Daniel was at the very highest levels of administration. And interestingly enough, in verse 3, it says he proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. So in addition to his ability to interpret dreams and look into the future, he's also highly skilled administratively, and so much so that the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. He's going to promote him over his two colleagues and and kind of seed running the the day-to-day operations of the whole government of this empire to Daniel. And then verse 4 says, the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. They started looking for dirt. We hear that these days, right? You're digging for dirt on Daniel. But they couldn't find anything to criticize him or condemn him. And that's where we get the line, because he was faithful, he was always responsible, and he was completely trustworthy. So in addition to his exceptional skills in wisdom and understanding, in, in administrative skills, he was also, his character was also highly outstanding, faithful, responsible, and trustworthy. And this was true even though, even though his colleagues were clearly otherwise. I mean, his colleagues were the kind of people who would, who would look for ways to undermine you. And even though they're looking for this, he manages to hold on to his integrity. That, that line always gets my attention, that it says they're looking for some way to accuse him. And maybe it wasn't every single one of them, but it sounds like enough of them were working together to make a, to, for, for this to create a problem for him, to undermine him, if at all possible. So I hope that none of you are in a work situation like that one. <laughs> where you're, the people at your level, your colleagues, and many of the people under you are actively working together to destroy you. They're looking for dirt because they want to remove you. I mean, even one person behaving like that can really make your life miserable, in, whether it's at work or it's in your family or anywhere else. I'm not sure how long I would last in Daniel's position at this high. I mean, I'm sure that there are stresses and challenges that go with being at high levels of government. And on top of that, the people around him are actively looking for ways to undermine him. I mean, I'd like to think I can handle some criticism, but I don't know. That sounds like a lot. That sounds like a terrible situation. I I remember one time I was in 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 another work situation different than the one I mentioned before where I was new to this company and it was a company where we were... um, 
uh, doing social science research and we would bid for the projects that we would work, work on. I was a project manager and part of the senior management team. And early in my time there, we had a meeting one day where we were talking about, we were reviewing the projects that we were going to bid on because uh, we would, you know, we would make a list of all the projects that were out there and we would pick the ones that we would bid on so that we could focus our energies on the ones we thought we could win and the kind of projects we wanted to do. And I had been named as the point of contact for several of these. And so when we came to this one project, um, I reported that I had decided not to bid on that project because it was a smaller project and it didn't really fit the, the work uh, priorities that we had, we had outlined uh, fairly recently. And I said, well, I've decided not to move forward with that. And to Mike complete astonishment, my supervisor, the person who had hired me, turned on me in front of that whole group of peers and chewed me out angrily for having made that decision and told me that, you know, chewed me out for not involving other people in the decision. And I don't even remember what all he said. What I do remember is being profoundly embarrassed and, and immediately being sick to my, physically sick to my stomach, which carried with me throughout the rest of that day. And I didn't sleep well that night. But that was just one time. That was one time. I mean, it characterized to some extent the work environment there. But I just can't imagine what it would be like to have everybody in that room actively trying to undermine me and destroy me. So as bad as my situation was, and maybe as bad as yours, I don't think any of us had it as bad as Daniel did in this case, where his colleagues are looking for reasons to accuse him, to embarrass him, and to destroy him. Well, if you know the story as you heard it read, uh, they finally decide that they're not going to find any dirt on him. There's nothing to criticize or condemn. And so what they decide is that the only way we're going to get to this guy is somehow we trick him or we trick the king and we do it in some way connected to his devotion to his God. He, he's such a faithful worshiper of his God. We, there's some, that's the only place that we could maybe, we could undermine him or trick him in some way. So they persuade the king. This just sounds a little silly to me these days, but they persuade the king to, pass, to sign a law that if you heard that list of people, everybody thinks this is a good idea, so please sign this law, that nobody, anybody who prays to anybody else, anyone else or any other God in our kingdom for 30 days, other than you, O king, will be executed. And the pen, and a penalty of death, nobody's allowed to pray to any other person or any other God for 30 days. So I'm not sure, I mean, this maybe tells you something about the mindset of an emperor of the time. Why would you sign a law like that? Um, maybe you're aspiring to be go- a, a God-like figure. But if that's true, why would it only be enforced for 30 days? Like, wouldn't your godness kind of extend beyond? I don't know. Anyway, this, it says the king signed the, the decree, the law. Verse 10 says, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down, what? As usual. I have a feeling that Daniel was a guy who was uh, connected to routines and to habits. That he was, we talked about this early in the year, last year, a year ago, I guess. About the, we did a series on habits. And we talked about how formative they are. I think Daniel was a man of habits, formative habits. He knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. Prayed, and he prayed three times a day. Again, we have just as he had always done. Habit again. As usual, Daniel's praying, just as he always has, giving thanks to his God. And then the officials, his enemies, went to his house, found him praying and asking for God's help. So Daniel doesn't change his behavior. Just like last week, the the young men said, we can't worship your God. Daniel says, I'm sorry, what the, you know, I know what the law is, but he prays as usual, just as he has always done, giving thanks to God and asking for his help. 
And there's a little detail in here that kind of puzzles me whenever I read it because it says he prays with his, his windows, his windows open toward Jerusalem. Now, I'm a timid enough person that maybe I would be able to keep praying if I was at home, but I think I'd probably close the window so these guys couldn't see me, right? I know the law is making what I'm doing illegal, but it says he prayed with his windows open just as he had always done. And of course, they, they could see into his house, they could see what was happening, and they go rushing off to the king telling him that his closest advisor, this man that he wants to promote to be over all the kingdom, is the one who's breaking this law. Can you believe it? What's interesting to me is that there's nothing recorded here about Daniel protesting the law, protesting uh, this, this accusation. He doesn't say anything in his own defense. Maybe he's thinking like Shadrach, like his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from last week, my God can deliver me. My God will deliver me, but even if he does not, I can't, I can't do anything other than what I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm a devoted servant of the God, I'm, of, of the Lord God. I am worshiping him just as I've always done. So he's thrown into this den of hungry lions to die, and there's no way to survive that. There's no way to survive being in the presence of these hungry, trapped of these hungry lions. Just like last week, there was no way to escape this fiery furnace, no way to survive it. And yet he does. And yet he does. God intervenes and Daniel's not harmed at all. And it's only after he's delivered that we have something recorded that Daniel says. That he responds, the king in his agony comes to the, li- to the, to the den of lions and says, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? And Daniel says, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight. And I have not wronged you, your majesty. And then the king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he trusted his God. It's like last week when they came out of the furnace, there wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. There's no scratch on Daniel, even though he's in there with these hungry lions. Another amazing, incredible story of God's deliverance. Lots of similarities to the story from last week. And then that chapter ends with King Darius sending a message to the people of every race, every nation, every language throughout the world, because throughout the known world, throughout their empire, saying peace and prosperity to you. And here's what he says. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. It's a really interesting kind of prophetic statement from this pagan king who just signed a law that people should only worship him. But somehow he has insight here, and he says, Daniel's God is the living God who will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. One of the things that I hope stands out to you as you hear that brief hymn of praise to God is pointing forward to someone who's coming, a foreshadowing. Who does that sound like? He is the living God who will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. This is more than 600 years before Jesus is born and yet Jesus comes and very literally fulfills this 
this look into the future. This story actually points us forward to Jesus in several different ways that stand out to me, that just really stood out to me this week as I revisited this story. First of all, Daniel's character, I think, points us to Jesus. When it says that Daniel was faithful, that he was always responsible, that he was completely trustworthy, we have one who comes later who is all of that and more. In fact, Jesus, it says, was sinless. He was without sin. And so in a certain sense, you could say that Jesus is the greater Daniel, someone who is also faithful, completely responsible, and completely always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Jesus is the sinless one. So I think Daniel's character points us to Jesus, but his experience with his enemies also points us to Jesus. Maybe you thought about that when you heard that Daniel's enemies were looking for ways to destroy him. In the, in the Gospel of Mark, it says in chapter 3, when the, some of the Pharisees were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely. They were actually going around watching him to catch him in something. Ch- uh, Mark chapter 11 says the chief priests and teachers of the law began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. There's something about his goodness, something about his challenge to them that they feared him. They began looking for a way to kill him. And Mark 14 says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, the whole ruling council of the, of the Jewish people, were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. They could find no evidence that would warrant putting him to death. I think Daniel's experience with his enemies foreshadows what Jesus is going to experience. Daniel's silence also does. Daniel's silence in the face of his accusers points us to Jesus. There's, there's no record of Daniel saying anything. And I realize this is maybe a classic argument from silence about silence, but even so, there's nothing here about Daniel protesting. And it says uh, in Isaiah 50, 53, where Isaiah is looking forward uh, to the one who is coming, the suffering servant, he says, he fulfilled by Jesus. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. Exactly what happened to Daniel. Unjustly condemned, he was led away, foreshadowing what was going to happen with Jesus. There is a key difference here, and I think this is a a contrast that matters deeply to us because Daniel was delivered from his enemies. Daniel was delivered from his enemies whereas Jesus was not. Jesus was not delivered from his enemies. God's purpose in Daniel's life was to, re- to, to rescue him. God's purpose in Jesus' life was not to rescue him so that you and I could be delivered. You and I could be rescued from the enemy of our souls. Jesus was not delivered from his enemies so that you and I could be delivered from the enemy of our souls, delivered from our sin, rescued from the imprisonment of our sin and from the trap that we were in. And I think Darius's praise for God points to Jesus as well. When he says, he is the living God who will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Very similar language, very similar things are said about Jesus throughout the whole New Testament and especially in the book of Revelation when he is acknowledged to be the Lord of all human history. 
It also echoes what Jesus says about himself. You may know that in the Gospels, one of Jesus' favorite names for himself or favorite titles is the Son of Man. Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. That term comes from the book of Daniel. Chapter 7 of the book of Daniel in, in chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of heaven. He's looking into heaven and he has a picture that represents realities in heaven. In verse 9, it says, chapter 7, verse 9, it says, I watched as thrones were put into place and the ancient one, in, the, in NLT it says the ancient one, or in NIV it says the ancient of days, the eternal God sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair was like the purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And then the court began its session and the books were opened. Here Daniel has a picture of judgment of a day of judgment, and he sees the eternal God, as it were, sitting on a throne. And in verse 13, it says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man, someone who looked like a human being walking into the courtroom, approaching the God, the eternal God. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. The son of man was, this son of man was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world, so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So every time you see Jesus refer to himself as the son of man in the gospels, have that verse in the back of your mind because what he's saying is, I am that person. I am that one who appears as a human being, who, who, who comes as a human being, and to whom all authority is given. My kingdom will never be destroyed. It will never end. And so follow me, trust me. I am at the core of human history, the understanding of human history. I am the God who is, who was, and who is to come. I'm the son of man. And so last week you may remember I talked about how our lives are just this short little little period in the long stretch of human history and then on beyond that into eternity. And that Jesus, as the Lord of all of human history, calls us, to serve him and to honor him in this brief segment of time that we live our lives. This morning, I'm gonna urge you with that in in mind, with that in, in your perspective, to stand firm, to stand firm in your workplace, to stand firm wherever you spend your weekdays. I urge you to be devoted to the worship of the one true living God, surrender to the lordship of Jesus. As we, as we hear the appeal in the story of Daniel, and the prophecy of, of, of the emperor, uh, King Darius. I also urge you by the power of God at work within you to be faithful, to be always responsible, to be completely trustworthy, as usual, just as you have always done. May it be said of you in your work that you are faithful, that you are completely responsible, that you are always trustworthy even if the people around you are not, and maybe especially if the people around you are not. You know, my prayer in that second work situation I told you about was eventually <clears throat> that, that things just didn't, that wasn't a great fit for me, I, I didn't feel. <clears throat> so I ended up praying and saying, Lord, if there are lessons, character lessons, life lessons you want me to learn from working in this place, I'm willing to learn them. Please help me to learn those lessons but please do it quickly. (laughs) This is killing me. (laughs) Could we speed up the process? I'm ready for the accelerated training program. I want to learn whatever you have for me in this situation so that I could be released from it in peace 
that you can allow me to move on. And God did do a miracle, which I'll tell you about another time, that I was able to leave uh, much sooner than I expected that I might be. But you know, with the perspective of more years, and as I look back, I think that's a fine prayer to pray. And in fact, I, would, I, I offer that to you as a prayer to pray if you're in a difficult work situation. Pay attention to what God might want to teach you, the ways that God might want to train you and shape you through the challenge and adversity of a difficult circumstance. But, but I would also urge you to think about the examples that we heard this morning, the example of Daniel, the power, the example and power of Christ. Because I think I would, I would hope that I would also now be praying and saying, Lord, what do you have for me to accomplish in this place? How might you want to work through me and through the shaping you've already done in my life to impact the people around me in this difficult place? Daniel was able to be faithful in these pagan empires for year after year after year after year. And God used him in that place. How might God want to use you in your weekday, wherever you are in your weekday, in your workplace, in your school, in your retirement community, wherever it is you volunteer. That's the second prayer I'd offer you. I urge you to pray that prayer this week on behalf of yourself and your workplace. God, how might you want to use me in this place? How might you want to accomplish your purposes in this place? As I continue to be faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Lord, may those things truly be said of us. May we be a people who are known to be faithful to you, who are clearly seen to be always responsible, who are clearly seen to be completely trustworthy. And outstanding, not so much because we're terrific people, but outstanding because you have transformed us to look more and more like Jesus because we're growing up in you. Lord, I ask you to make clear to us, to bring to mind for each of us the ways that you are present and at work in our weekdays, especially in our workplaces. Help us to be aware, Lord, of what you're doing and whom you're touching and and what you might have for us to do while you continue to mold and shape us by the challenges we face. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence and your grace in our lives toward this end in Jesus' name.